Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Jacob Smith. I'm the college teaching director here at our Anderson campus. So normally I'm across the street uh, with our college students on Sundays, but this summer uh, they've kind of dispersed. And so while we still have a slight remnant, uh, the faithful few, uh, I kind of jump around a little bit. I- I'm here with you guys this morning. I've been here a few times this summer, uh, but this is my last time here at Anderson, Maine. It's been super fun. I always love getting to come over. Uh, and I'm really excited for this morning uh, for two big reasons, one of which uh, is we get to talk about eschatology, which is the end times, the study of the end. Uh, so big, 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 big topic. Uh, but the second reason I'm excited is that this is supposed to be my shortest talk all summer uh, because our AC is broken. And so I was told, cut it down. So we'll see what happens when those worlds collide. Uh, but I want to start out by just giving you a glimpse of this thing that I found this week. What are you doing? (laughs) Did you fall in the toilet? Man, I've been there, right? Man, we've all been there. We've all had that moment where we just felt stuck in maybe a less than ideal situation, right? Sometimes it's a a plumbing fixture uh, in our home where we feel stuck. Sometimes it's maybe a boring conversation that we didn't mean to start with a family member or coworker. Sometimes we feel stuck in an old obligation. Sometimes it's a a job or or an assignment that we signed up for uh, and now it's come around and we're not too excited about it. Sometimes we feel stuck uh, in a job, in an occupation. Sometimes it's a thing that doesn't bring us life, doesn't bring us joy, and yet we have to do it uh, to survive. Sometimes we find ourselves stuck uh, in toxic relationships, sometimes with a family member or a friend or a loved one or a relationship where we know it's bad and it brings a lot of uh, hardship and it brings a lot of turmoil and yet we don't know how to get out. And so we're stuck in that situation. We're stuck in that relationship. Sometimes we get stuck in lies, an expanding lie. Maybe it started small, but yet it's grown and grown and encompasses a lot of our day-to-day, a lot of our life. And so we live behind this mask and the kind of this falsehood. Uh, and when we feel stuck in that, we can't get out. Sometimes we feel stuck uh, in an addiction, in a behavior, in something that pops up, this pattern in our lives that we know is terrible, that, that has brought us so much pain and sorrow. It's brought our loved ones so much pain and sorrow, and yet we feel stuck within it. I mean, we all feel stuck at times, even just in our world at large. We live in a world and in a society that is falling apart all around us. I don't know about you, but even just this past week, I look around, I see the stories, and I just feel stuck. I feel like we're caught in this cycle of abuse and of corruption We're caught in this this terrible violence. We're caught in, honestly, despair. That's the world that we're living in. And it doesn't really matter uh, which law we might pass or which hashtag we might use uh, because our world is struggling not just against uh, sexism and racism and terrorism. Our world is struggling against sin. That's the root. That's the issue. That's the cancer that we just can't shake off. And the tragedy is that that is a world, that, or that is a war, that is a struggle that our world cannot win. It just can't. So how do we respond to that? How do we as believers respond to the reality of our stuck existence? How do we live as people who are stuck 
And this summer, we've been walking through theology. We've been looking at who our God is and what he's accomplishing in our world. And we're doing this because God wants us to love him with not just our hearts, but also with our minds. God wants us to dedicate time and energy and and study to understanding him. He, He wants us to use our minds to understand things about him because he knows that in that process, as we learn more about him, he understands that we will learn more uh, of him. We will, we will get to know him on, on a personal, relational, intimate level. And knowing God in that sense, having that relationship, having that intimacy, I mean, that's, that's the goal of life. So this morning we're getting to focus on eschatology, literally the study of the end, the study of the end times. And we're looking at specifically how all believers can embrace certain truths about the end of this world. And in doing so, we can experience an incredible hope despite the struggle of our stuck existence. Now, honestly, this... uh, this talk, this sermon uh, that we're going to walk through this morning is very different from what I had on Thursday afternoon. Uh, my sermon kind of plan and outline was very different on Thursday afternoon than it was on Friday morning in light of just sort of world events. It changed again even last night, but, but I started off hoping to kind of walk through the variety of views that Christians hold regarding the end of the world. Some of us are very familiar with the fact that that there is a lot of opinion, there are a lot of interpretations, there are a lot of views about the end of the world held within Christian circles. Uh, There are a lot of very godly men and women who have created and, and hold to different views, different timelines. People have calendars that don't line up with each other, with certain events that pop up in some and, and not in others. And so my goal originally was to kind of walk us through kind of the major viewpoints, the, the major ideas. And the goal was to kind of shine a light on it, to offer some clarity. Uh, kind of my goal was to equip you to essentially walk through those discussions a little bit better to, to kind of discuss those, those issues that divide us so that we were more prepared to have those conversations. But man, this week has been rough for our nation. The violence, the divisions, the issues that basically culminated just a few hours north of us in Dallas on Thursday night. So in light of that, I really felt led by the Spirit waking up on Friday to to go a different direction. To instead focus us entirely upon what unifies us as believers. To focus on the, the truths that we can all affirm. That every single person who places their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, every person who who recognizes Scripture as the Word of God, I mean, these are truths that we all can affirm. These are truths that we all land on and and proclaim. Because the reality is that our our culture right now, I mean, it's dividing. It's fracturing. It's falling apart all around us. And it's tragic And yet in that tragedy, there's this beautiful opportunity for believers to live out, to exemplify the unity that's offered through faith in Jesus Christ. And now more than ever, 
we can show the world around us how any person of any gender, from any background, from any socioeconomic status, from any nation, all these people, from all these tribes, from all these nations, from all these languages are unified as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the opportunity that's given to us. That's the unity that's given to us as believers, as a body of believers. So now is the time to really live that out. Now is the time to hold fast to our unity, to the things that bring us together, to, on the things that we can all agree upon. I mean, there is a time and there's a place to discuss our differences in theology. Absolutely. I'm not saying that is wrong at all. But I would suggest, I would propose that right now, this place might not be that time. That instead, right now, what we have is an opportunity to be different to stand out, to be a light in the darkness, to be a city on a hill, to be unity in the midst of division. That's what we have right now. And so to that end, I essentially landed upon seven foundational truths that we can all agree on regarding the end times, regarding the end of the world. Seven kind of foundational uh, uh, truths that we see in Scripture that we all can affirm. Uh, but then last night, I was led, not, not by the Spirit, but by the Anderson Air Conditioning Unit, uh, to go to a three. So we're going to go with three, three truths. <laughs> Just cut it down a little bit so we're not sweating too bad. Three central truths, three foundational truths that we can all agree upon as believers regarding the end of our world. Now, let me just say briefly before we even get there, uh, that tension in theology is good, right? Again, discussion is good. Tension is good. It's hard at times. It can be frustrating for some of us, but tension is good. God has allowed it for a reason. Uh, When we look at our theology, a prof of mine in seminary described it to me this way. He says, you you could think about our theology as basically a, a frozen pond. He says, and when you walk out on that pond, the eye is going to have different thickness in different areas, right? That's, that's how that works. And so there are certain truths or certain aspects, uh, doctrines that we uphold that, man, that ice is thick. It's not going anywhere. The triune God, the depravity of man, salvation by grace through faith. I mean, th- that is thick ice, strongly supported by scripture. But then there's some issues where the ice gets thinner, And those are the ones where where we begin to debate. The things like the end of the world, the eschatology, the end times. That's that's a thinner ice area. And so there's going to be debate. There's going to be discussion and there's going to be tension. But I'll tell you that tension is good. God has allowed it to remain because God loves to work through tension. Because in that tension, what it does is it breeds humility. Ideally, it breeds humility. Whenever there's a disagreement, whenever there's tension with a brother or sister in Christ over what God has revealed to us, that should produce two things in our lives. It should produce a a greater reading of Scripture. First and foremost, it should drive us into His Word. Second of all, it, it it should drive us to a greater reliance upon the Spirit. To really turn to the Lord, to really be in prayer regarding these issues. All of it kind of bundled up in humility. That's why God allows it to remain. Sometimes we let it take us in other directions of frustration or anger or bitterness. And I'll tell you, if that's the way that you deal with that tension, if that's the way you deal with those discussions, I'm telling you, you're in the wrong. It's not what God wants from us. It's not how God has designed this tension to work. 
He wants to work through it to create humility. I would, I would encourage you too that uh, maybe as you are studying and, and looking through that, and if you have people in your life that you discuss this with, I would encourage you to not just let your theology tell you what God is going to do. Let, let scripture do that. Let his revealed word do that. And, and don't just wrestle with one little verse or one little passage out of context. I would say try your best to really look at scripture as a whole. Wrestle with all of it. The full context of God's revealed word. I would encourage you too, if, if you want to look into this more, if you, this is a topic that you're really interested in, I cannot over-recommend this book. It's called Exploring Christian Theology. Uh, it's, it's a compilation of, of multiple authors. The main editors are a guy named uh, Nathan Holstein, Michael Spiegel, uh, professors at Dallas Theological Seminary. And, and I'll tell you, there, this is a three-volume set. This is the third of the, of the three and uh, so if you're looking into this, if you're going to buy this, make sure it's the one that says church, spiritual growth, end times down at the bottom. But man, this is incredibly, incredibly beneficial book. I've read a lot of different books on the end times, a lot of different opinions, a lot of different stances. This is by far the most helpful one. It's engaging and it's truthful and it's so helpful. The way they outline the positions, the way they explain all the issues is wonderful. I cannot recommend this book enough. If you have any interest in learning more about the end times, you want to pick this up. You really do. So when we look at these ideas, when we look at these truths, what are the, what are the foundational items? What are the foundational scriptural truths that we can all uphold? The first is that Jesus Christ is coming back. Right? He is. That day is coming. We see it throughout scripture. One of my favorite spots is Acts 1 because the disciples essentially have just been left by Christ. He, he rose into the heavens and they're just kind of standing around looking. And so an angel shows up. And he's like, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who had been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. The angel says, look, you guys are wasting your time. You don't, you, you need to go do that stuff he just told you to do. Like he gave you that commission. It was a really great commission. You should go do that thing because one day he's going to come back. But here's the truth. Here's the reality. We know he's going to come back, but we don't know when. Again, this is affirmed throughout scripture. We see it in Revelation 3, for example, that therefore remember what you received and heard and obey it and repent. And if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will never know at what hour I will come against you. This is Christ talking to one of the churches in Revelation. Describing something that he says over and over again in our scripture that, look, he's coming back, but we don't know when. We don't know the timing. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. And, and this unknown really frustrates some people. <laughs> this unknown, it frustrates some people to the point that they just like, they just pick a day. Right? They're like, you know, I know God told me that I don't know the day, I don't know the hour, but I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna pick one. Now I'll feel better about that. Like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna pick this day and a lot of times they'll justify it. They'll, they'll have some sort of reason or some sort of code that they broke. But, but I'll tell you, God has not hidden the, the true date of Christ's return in some sort of mysterious, convoluted cipher where you read the Mayan calendar backwards and transpose it into emojis and project it. Like, you just don't, that's not a thing. God has not done that. He hasn't. He's told us very clearly, repeatedly, 
No one knows the day. No one knows the hour. Jesus Christ could return at any given moment. Why? Why does he force us? Why does he allow us to just sit in the midst of that unknown? It's because it creates in his people a sense of urgency. A beautiful sense of urgency. Something that we need. It's the difference between just a normal quiz or a pop quiz, right? If you're in college and you've got a quiz on Friday... Well, you're going to study on Thursday, right? Very, maybe just very early Friday. I don't know. Like somewhere in that very small window, you know, because my quiz is 1 p.m. on Friday. I'm going to start studying 12 p.m. Friday. Like that, I just know that's the way my life is going to go. Versus I'm in a class and, and I know there's a quiz, but I don't know when. Right? It's a pop quiz and it could be any given day. In that case, I'm what? I'm nervous probably all the time. Uh, I'm also probably going to be very diligent to to pay attention to the class, to learn. I'll probably go to class. Yeah, I know. It happens. I promise. I've seen it like twice, but it's, it's a sense of urgency that we feel when we don't know the timetable, when we don't know the deadline. God says, I'm going to send Jesus Christ back, right? We know that to be true, but twist, we don't know when. God has given us a mission. Jesus Christ gave his disciples a mission. While he's gone, while he was absent, he says, I want you to go to the ends of the earth. I want you to go to all people. I want you to teach them what I taught you. I want you to proclaim to them what I proclaim, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, the son of God, would step out of heaven and onto earth to live and die and rise again for our sake. That we all might be saved. That anyone who calls on his name would be forgiven of their sin. That anyone might be saved by grace through faith in his life, death, and resurrection. That anyone who trusts in him would be united with him, not only in his death, but also in his resurrection. That we would know that we have eternal life waiting for us beyond this world. Man, that's our charge. That's our mission, to go to the entire world and share that beautiful truth. And we don't know the deadline. So there should be a sense of urgency in our living. And one of the best pieces of advice I ever received was a guy telling me about how there should always be a sense of desperation in our preaching. And not even just preaching on a stage, but just our proclamation of a gospel, of the gospel. There should always be a sense of desperation in that. Knowing that this is the lifeline for a dying world. There should always be a sense of desperation in our preaching. There should always be a sense of urgency in our living. The way that we go about our lives should reflect the fact that we don't know when the end is coming. That we don't know when our time is up. Paul himself says that he he longed to be united with Christ. He knew that death would come for him one day and he didn't, he was not afraid of it. He embraced it. He says, man, I can't wait to be with my Lord and my Savior one day. He says, but in the meantime, while I'm still here on this earth, I'm going to live for Christ. I'm going to equip the saints. I'm going to preach to the lost. Dying is gainful for me, but living is for Christ. There's a sense of urgency to his living. That should be true of us. That should be true of our daily lives. We can all affirm the fact, all believers can affirm the fact that Jesus Christ is returning one day. We can also all affirm the truth 
that God will redeem our bodies through physical resurrection. We see this throughout scripture. One of the best spots is 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says it is the same with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable and what is raised is imperishable. Paul just finished talking about uh, Christ and this big kind of spiel about the, the gospel. It's a wonderful explanation of what Christ accomplished. And he says, look, we have to affirm Christ's resurrection without Christ being raised from the dead, which some people at that time were denying. He says if he had not been raised from the dead, we have no hope. He says we should be pitied above all other people. We're fools. We're lost. But no, Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. And he says, we will be as well. We're united with him in that resurrection. So this is beautiful because we are sown as we're dying and as we're buried. Man, our our bodies, it's sown with dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, yet it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Paul is saying, look, when we are raised, there's going to be some sort of transformation. There's some sort of redemption taking place in that. How exactly does that look? We're not completely sure. But I think our, our best evidence, the best kind of way to try to understand it is we have an example in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul gets at at the end of this passage. He says, just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, meaning Adam, he says, let us also bear the image of the man of heaven, meaning Jesus Christ. He says, there will come a day where we are united with Christ in his image. Meaning when we see the life of Christ after his resurrection, there are things that he accomplishes that are miraculous. I mean, there's, there's miracles before his death as well, but, but there are certain aspects of his being, of his body, of his, of his image that are different, that are changed. And so Paul says, that's what's waiting for us. Man, and our takeaway from that, if we know that God has planned to redeem our bodies, what it is, is it's a, it's a reminder, it's a charge, it's a challenge to remember that, that our bodies are not designed for sin, right? That this is not the existence we're meant to be in. These aren't the lives we're meant to live. We are not designed for sin. My wife and I have a daughter named Charlotte who's wonderful. She's 18 months old. Uh, and she is seen here uh, at one of her swim lessons, right? She's halfway through. She had them this past week. She's got one week left. She's at the swim lesson. She looks actually kind of happy. I probably should have found a different picture because uh, Charlotte actually refers to her swim lessons uh, as her worst living nightmare, all right? That's her words that she <laughs> uses with us. Uh, she absolutely hates the swim lessons. I don't know why. She just hates them. She hates them. Anytime she gets in the water, my wife is so loving and gracious. She takes her to these swim lessons, trying to teach her survival skills. Uh, and yet, as soon as they get into the water, every single time, every single time they went this past week, as soon as they get in the water, Charlotte sticks her hands up and she goes to go like this. Uh, and that's because this is her signal for all done. All right. So this is what she does. When she's like done eating her meal, uh, when she's done getting her diaper changed, when she's done, you know, whatever, getting dressed. This is her signal for all done. So as soon as she hits that water, she's like, "Mm -ah!" and as soon as her arms start waving, she begins to cry and wail and scream. And she continues to cry for the entirety of the lesson, which is an hour long. So my wife is trying to go through these motions and go through these kind of practices and and procedures. And Charlie and Ty goes, the whole, for an hour. It's amazing. Her endurance is very impressive. I think she's destined for triathlon. Well, probably not triathlon because she hates swimming, but she, 
We'll do something that taxes her body because she's got, I mean, she's got it. She hates that experience. She hates so much the swim lessons. Why? Because she's just not designed for water. That's my takeaway. She's not designed to live in water. That's not where she should go in life. She's not designed for it. We are not designed for it. We need oxygen. We need goggles. We need a lot of things that the water does not provide for us. We are not designed to live in water. We're not designed to live in sin. It's cancer. It's destructive. Zach talked about this last week. Sin causes separation. It brings enslavement. It brings struggle. It brings strife. It brings death. So we don't need to be surprised when our lives take unfortunate turns when we're deep in sin. We have to recognize the fact that our bodies are not meant to be deep in, or deep in sin. We need to recognize that sin always brings destruction to ourselves and to others. We need to feel the weight of that. When we look at our future and see that redemption is coming, that needs to remind us that right now we need redemption. Right now everything is not great. The decisions I make, the desires I have are not wonderful. We feel that gravity, but we don't just let it sit on us and weigh us down and feel burdened by shame. Instead, we we take that and we confess it to the Lord. We confess it to God. We confess it to each other. That's why James tells us that we should confess our sins to one another, to pray for one another. Because we're all in the same situation. We're all awaiting that glorious future day. And in the meantime, we can come together unified by the same shared hope and we can share each other's burdens. We can encourage and exhort, admonish each other. We can all affirm that Jesus Christ will return. We can all affirm that redemption is coming and we can all affirm as believers that on that glorious day, God will destroy sin He'll vanquish death. And he's going to provide new eternal life. We see this in Romans 8, where Paul's talking to a group of believers. He says, I consider that our present sufferings, they cannot even be compared to the coming glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits for the revelation of the sons of God. Paul is saying, look, I know that there are struggles in our present circumstances. And Paul knew suffering, right? Paul was in prison. Paul was beaten. He was tortured. Paul eventually would be murdered and killed for his faith. He says, I know that there are sufferings in your life right now. He says, but I guarantee you that what you experience now cannot even be compared to the glory that is coming. He says, I know that on that future day, there's a glory awaiting us that will just (laughs) vanquish any thought or reservation or issue or anxiety you ever held on to. He says, that coming glory is so wonderful. He says, for in hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with endurance. Paul says, look, what we have in our future is something that we don't fully understand, right? It's something that we don't quite see. It's something that we don't quite grasp in our limited sinful capacity. Some people are going to claim to have seen it. 
Some people are going to claim, no, no, this is exactly what it is. I know what this looks like and I know how this functions. But I'll tell you that that is counter to Scripture. A few prophets, the Apostle John, they got to see a glimpse of that hope. No one else. And Paul says, man, so let's wait for it. Let's wait for that hope with endurance. Because the reality is that that hope, what that does, that, that future hope that we hold, it has a present value. It provides such incredible benefit to us now. If we have that future hope, what it does is it can lift our eyes off of the current struggle and turmoil and it brings our eyes to a better future existence. What it does is it can pull our attention out of our current inward problems, right? Hope promises us that we're not stuck. Hope promises us that this current situation will one day end, that Jesus Christ will come, that God will win, that death will lose, that sin will be vanquished. So what that hope does, it takes me out of my inward problems and it puts my attention and my focus on outward purpose. It puts my attention on other people. I'm free not having to worry about what tomorrow might bring, not having to be anxious about what I'm going to be doing or, or where I'm going to be going or how much is that 401k growing or, or, or what do I really need to do to set my daughter up well or what, what is this thing that's coming for me down the road? I, I don't have to worry about those things. I don't have to look for those kind of checkpoints that my society and my culture line up for me about getting that house or that car or those kids or whatever it might be. That's not my concern. Instead, that hope in my future, that hope allows me to look at the purpose that is set before me by God, which is to share the gospel with the world. That's what we have. That's what we all have as believers. And that hope, man, it should generate two crucial things in our lives. I would say first and foremost, that hope should generate within us a thankfulness beyond compare. A thankful heart that goes to God and just is grateful for his promises, is grateful for what he's given us, the the things that he's revealed to us in his word. How wonderfully gracious of him to show us where we're headed. He didn't have to do that, yet he has. In his grace and his mercy, he's given us this future promise that we can grab a hold of, that we never have to let go of, no matter what our current circumstances, no matter what our current society, no matter what our current cultural struggles might be. We have this thankfulness generated through this hope. This hope should also, as I said, generate within us a sense of purpose that is urgent. What conversation would you have today if you knew that Jesus Christ was returning tomorrow? Who would you reach out to? Who would you contact? Who would you set up a phone call with or a coffee date with if you knew that Jesus Christ was returning tomorrow? Because the reality is that we don't know when that day might come. We don't know when that moment will be. So as we close, we're just going to take a moment. We're going to go to the Lord. We're going to thank him for what he's promised. But we're also going to ask that he would renew our purpose, that he would give us that urgency, that he would push us 
outward to others on his mission. Lord, we thank you so much that you've given us this opportunity, God, to to open up your word, Lord, to learn more about you and what you've promised to us. God, we thank you that you are faithful even when we are not, that, God, you make sense even when we don't. Lord, we thank you that there are men and women in our midst who have dedicated so much time and energy and thought and study into understanding your promises. Lord, that they have laid a groundwork ahead of us, Lord, that that is, is so valuable. Lord, we thank you for their work, for what you accomplished through them. Lord, we just ask that we would be faithful to remember the central promises. That, Lord God, we wouldn't get caught up in, 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 in the disputes and in the, in the discussions. God, that can, that can divide us. Lord, we, we ask that you would allow those, those tensions to instead create humility in our lives. Lord, to drive us deeper into your word. And Lord, we ask that you would give us a sense of urgency with our purpose, Lord, to make you known. If you would take a moment right now, just ask the Lord to to draw to your mind a name or a face to bring to mind who it is in your life that needs to hear the gospel. The family member, the, the friend, the coworker, the spouse that you should talk with that you could share the love of Christ with, that you could explain the gospel to. Ask the Lord to bring that person to your mind and to give you the strength, the the awareness, and the motivation to speak with that person, to initiate that conversation, that they might hear the gospel, that they might be saved before the end of this world. Ask the Lord to bring that person to mind right now. Lord, once again, we thank you for who you are, God, for what you've done. God, let us be your witnesses. God, let us be your representatives, people who speak love and grace, enriched by truth. Lord, let us support each other well. Lord, let us be uh, supportive of our our culture, of our, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers. God, be with our leaders as as they navigate some some tough situations. Lord, we ask that your grace would be abundant, that your light would shine ever brighter in the midst of this darkness. So God, we pray these things, ask them all in your will. Amen. All right, well, we love you guys, and we'll see you in a week.